The following Dharma talk was presented at Common Ground Meditation Center, Minneapolis, Minnesota, as part of the monthly Guest Dharma series. Welcome, Aja. Thank you. Thank you for being here away from California. Um, Aja resides at Abai Gary Monastery in California. Um, and he is gracious enough to come and uh, visit us sometimes once a year, sometimes more. Yeah. So we're very grateful to have you back again this year. He's leading, uh, giving this talk tonight and then also doing a workshop tomorrow. And there's still space if anybody's interested in that. Metta as concentration practice is the title of that. Thank you so much. Okay, thanks. Namo dasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo dasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Namo dasa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhasa. Buddhang damang sankhang namasami. So when I was originally talking to, to Mark about uh, uh, coming from this this, uh, this trip to Minnesota, um, so I usually do come about once a year because my, my parents live from, compared to California, they live in Indiana, so it's the same neighborhood. So I always swing through Minnesota on the way to Indiana. And uh, so I've had the great pleasure. It's been about eight years since I've been, been coming. And, uh, and, there's a few years where I didn't come when I was living in New Zealand with Ajahn Chandako. But almost all the other time I've tried to come at least once a year. And so it's uh, uh, we were still meeting in Mark and Wynn's you know, living room <laughs> when, I, when I first came. So it's quite lovely just to see how the Sangha here has grown and get to you know, know people. And, and so I'm just glad to be, glad to be back, very honored. Um, when Mark initially asked, uh, you know, for a title, for, I don't know if it was Shelley who asked for a title, it was like six mo- five months ago, and I was like, oh, come on, you know, <laughs> get a title for talking about five months from now. And I looked at the calendar, and I realized that, uh, you know, we kind of knew that this would be the day, just because of the restrictions of my, my travels and things. And uh, I don't know if anybody here knows, but today is actually, like, in Thailand, uh, in most of Southeast Asia, today is like the most auspicious day in all of the entire year. So this is sort of like Christmas, Easter, Fourth of July, all sort of rolled into one in terms of religious holidays in the, in Thailand. And uh, I was talking to my my abbot Ajahn Pasno about this, and and uh, he said uh, it's interesting that in, um, in in Thailand, sort of both most of the Buddhist holidays, it's. Uh, it's kind of an opportunity for a party. It's like get together with all your friends. You might come to the monastery for a little bit of some ceremonies and some rituals, but it's like kind of a stereotype of kind of Thai people is that they like to have a good time. So it's any time they have a get together and cook and have a big meal and you know, like that. It's any opportunity, and so the Buddhist holidays tend to be that. But Vesaka Puja, which is what today is called, it's Vesaka, uh, the month of Vesaka. Full moon, the full moon of, of May, is uh, it's still in Thailand is, is very uh, held very reverentially. It's like uh, people will come to the monastery and uh, uh, usually stay there all night long, 
I won't keep you up that long tonight, but uh, we will um, at our monastery in California tonight. There'll be an all-night vigil. We'll still stay up, and I'll talk about some of the sort of ritual aspects of it, and, and why we do it, and what's what's why not why it's important, but how it can be an aid to our meditation practice. So it's it's not just something that we do just because it's on the calendar, but there's there can be actually real reasons that support our practice for for doing it, and I think kind of in the in the West, you know, we've most of us have come to the meditation practice as a as a form of you know as a, as a practice or a, a sort of a technique to to you know to be calm to to settle ourselves and um, you know, there's very good reasons you know for doing all of that but there's many different aspects of, of say Buddhism in general um, that uh, you know we, we kind of miss out on in the West it's something that we don't really even know about like uh, I'd say my parents are not uh, uh, Buddhist or anything like that, but I've been a monk for 14 years now, and I've kind of lived in the monastery for 16. And it's just like, like I don't think they have even a clue that there's even such a thing as Buddhist holidays. And it's a, kind of a little bit of sadness in me, you know, that the, that you know that there's not that sort of recognition of, of the of not necessarily for my parents, but just to sort of in, in sort of the Buddhist culture in general too. There's just not much of a, a sense that there's anything other than sort of meditation practice and. Uh, so it's a, you know, living in a monastery, it uh, it was kind of interesting. Like I think one of the reasons I was attracted to the particular monastery that I uh, have ordained into, which is the uh, Abayagiri Buddhist Monastery in, in Northern California, was I was I was visiting various monasteries. I started my kind of exploration up at uh, Arrow River, just uh, uh, just uh, up Highway 61, in Thunder Bay, Ontario. And uh, actually, when I des- when I was looking at a place to ordain to, to practice, that's where I decided I was going to go. After visiting all these places, went to Thailand, I decided to go there. But then I, I sat a retreat, and I actually saw how crazy my mind was you know, sitting for three months. And I said, "No, I really need some really serious, <laughs> pra- or, you know, sort of a training environment for that." Like Arrow River would have been really wonderful in the sense it would have been a lot of chance to practice meditation. I think that's what um, inspired me to go there, was to, to be able to serve and, to, and to, to have time to meditate. But there's more of a training to the, the whole aspect of, uh, say, monastic training in general. It's, it's really is. Even my teacher, Ajahn Pasna, he's been a monk. This year will be 40 years that he's been a monk. And he still talks about it as a training. You know, it's, it's like, even though I can't talk about or know you know what his attainments are, but you know he still talks about his you know the, the monastic form is a training, and so like even if you were enlightened, you know it's still you still have to learn skills of how to deal with people and how to deal with new situations or teach people in different you know as as the years go by, people change and their attitudes change, so it's it's always you're always learning, so it's always a some sort of aspect of a training happening, and. Uh, but when I came to Abayagiri, I'd visited many different places, and, and uh, but I decided to actually stay there when one day we were just just going through the normal routine of the sort of evening what we call evening puja. Puja just is sort of like a, a gathering where you'd uh, um, like wind it, like the candles and and uh, light incense sometimes, and bow to the shrine and do some chanting. And then that's usually like all the elements that would sort of be in a puja, but you can do chanting as well and, and meditation. So every morning and every evening in the monastery we have what's called a, a puja, where we come together and just sort of, you know, say bow to the shrine and, and say pay reverence to the, the Buddha Dhamma Sangha. And uh, but one evening uh, we were just getting ready to, to I, think, I think it was Ajahn Amaro, 
was getting ready to light the candles, and he just stopped. He just, he just he stopped for a second or two, and I, I noticed this, this pause. And he put the lighter down, he turned around, and he goes, why are we doing this? You know, why are we lighting the candle? You know, what, you know what's the significance of that? And he just gave a little little talk about that. You know, what, what is the significance? What is the, you know, it's just not something that we just do habitually, you know, so there's actually a meaning behind it. And then a couple of days later, he did the same thing. He's like, okay, why am I lighting the incense? You know, what, is, what does that mean? You know, it's like, what, and then just sort of, just start taking all the various aspects of our life at the monastery that you could just do habitually, ritually. And sort of really just walking through them, and it's just it really kind of made the whole, all the aspects of our life more real. And uh, so I was like, I was really impressed with that. It's just you know not, you know, there can be an element of just doing doing things. And like one aspect of like when you first start the training and at the monasteries is we do a lot of uh, chanting. You know, we do what's called these parita chanting, which is a protective, protective chants, and. Uh, what you have to do when you're when you're a student and you're learning it, you you will have a chant book. I've got one here, but the chant leader will sort of chant out the first, say, like two or three words of the of the particular chant that we're doing. You have to pay attention and you have to hear exactly what they say, and that will tell you, okay, that's the chant that we're going to do. So it's just, you know, like, it's the first few few words of your favorite song, and everybody joins in, and uh, and so the first. First, usually about the first year of, of being in the training, you know, you, you hear it, and then you spend the next you know twenty minutes trying to find which which chant that was, and then by the time you find it, they're, they're on to the next one, and so the you know, part of the training is just to, to be at ease with being confused, <laughs> just not knowing what's going on, and so that's that's actually a valuable part of the training as well. But I think like in a general, it's really good to to really know, you know why are you doing things. Um, Say one aspect, uh, kind of what I wanted to talk about was so like today is uh, say Visakha Puja, and uh, so this does commemorate um, sort of in in Indian history, sort of in Indian sort of mythology or the way say Indians hold uh, history is, is very different than we do in the West. So like in the West, it's like you know we want to know on. You know, July Fourth, you know, seventeen seventy-six. You know, this was signed by these people and things like that. Well, it's, it's not that way in Indian, it's Indian sort of history, you know, Sri Lankan history probably as well. It's much more like the you know, the spiritual essence of sort of what happened is much more important. So like you know how that can sort of transform the heart, or you know, like it might be actually you know the Buddha gave this particular teaching in this town. And uh, this is what he taught. Like they might memorize you know, the, the teachings themselves, and and like there's, I guess there's towns in, in India where the Buddha actually did give, say, specific teachings. And um, everybody in the town, if they're Christian, they're Buddhist, they're Hindus, it doesn't matter. They will have memorized the suttas. It's just sort of like that town has that identity that the Buddha was here, and, and they they might also know teachings of other like Jain teachers or other. Other teachers through the, through the years that have come there, so but there's a sort of their sort of sense of history or their sense of you know identity is, is based on sort of what happened in that area. So um, so you, you will get this sort of great reverence for you know, teachings in that way. But if you like, if you look at the Buddhist teachings, it's really hard to you, know, you don't get this sort of sense of okay, you know, he became enlightened and then. He did this the next day, and then he did you know this you know the first year he did these teachings, and the second year he did these. Or you can piece it together to a certain extent, but a lot of it is just uh, you know it's uh, um, 
yeah, there's there's not a, a like, like we would have in, in Western history this chronological teachings. But what we do do know is from say the the Svisaka Puja is that um, it was a full uh, say again I, I say myth, but it's just sort of this is like the, the history that's been passed down. The oral history is that in the full the full moon of May is when the Buddha was born, and uh, there's a whole. You know, myth story about you know, how you know, he when he was born. Well, first is like his mother had all these sort of uh, mystical dreams of you know, like seeing a um, uh, like an elephant uh, appearing. She had this inner dream, and she had this dream of sort of being taken up into a heaven realm, and and then you know this was all sort of interpreted that she was going to have a you know great being, and then and so then the when the when the, the Buddha to be was born, you know the the myth is that he. Uh, when he was born, he, he landed on his feet and, and was born from his mother's side. And uh, he took seven steps and then raised his hand and said something like, "You know, I am the greatest being in the, in, the, in the world, and this is my last birth." And you know, it's like maybe it happened, maybe it didn't. <laughs> it's hard to know. But uh, um, um, but you know, the significance. You know, the um, well, so. That you know, this all of this, you know, he probably was born in the month of May, and probably could have even been on. You know, I would say like somebody who does have the sort of spiritual baramis and the, and, and the sort of uh, all the cultivation that it took to become a Buddha probably you know was born on, on the full moon day. So I don't really doubt that. So he's like, so he was born on the the full moon day of uh, of May, and then. Um, because at the age of 29 is when he sort of uh, had his uh, deciding to, to leave the palace. And uh, probably most people know the, the story behind that is that uh, he was uh, um, decided that, well, um, he was, you know, sort of having, I don't say doubts, but uh, he was sort of, um, you know, as, you know, he was getting older and just started having doubts about um, sort of, you know, the world and you know, where things were going and he had his uh, charioteer uh, take him out into the village and his father had shielded him his entire life from sort of realities because when he was born they had uh, some, um, uh, like say, astrologers or some seers come and, and like they, they checked the body for auspicious marks and, and things like this and it was prophesied that he would... Uh, Either be one of two things. He would be like the a world emperor who would sort of like conquer all of India and all of the known world, and, and would be a, a righteous ruler and sort of you know, rule with the being gentle and bring sort of world peace at the time. And his father really liked that idea. He thought he was, his father had been like a, a ruler, and he he was he was attracted to that idea. And, but the other uh, prophecy was that he would become a Buddha. Um, you know, um, Someone who would uh, you know, bring the truth to the world and, and, uh, and to help people in that way, and so his, his father you know, didn't didn't want that. So his father had the idea was if he could shield um, his son from all the suffering in the world, that uh, that you know, he wouldn't have that spiritual um, inclination wouldn't arise in him, and it probably was that's probably why the Buddha you know was able to actually you know sort of have the impetus to. Um, to, you know, to actually set out because he had been completely shielded and hadn't seen very much suffering. It's like the stories were like every single night the gardeners would have to go through and any flowers that were just even starting to wilt, they would take them away or if anybody working in the palace was even slightly ill, they weren't allowed to come to work that day and like he never saw illness, he never saw death and things like this. And then 
when he finally sort of snuck out of the palace with his charioteer, then the, the story is he saw the, the four heavenly messengers on sort of four different days. He saw a, a sick person who he'd never seen, and that kind of shocked him and sort of disgusted him, and then saw a corpse, and then saw a, um, what is it, sick person? Aging person, that's right. Yeah, aging person, and then he saw a religious seeker, and uh, the seeker was the last person he had seen, and then this kind of intrigued him. And uh, it's interesting on the day that uh, um, that the Buddha actually then decided to leave the palace was also the day that his son was born. So he was the Buddha was married and uh, had a, had a son uh, named Rahula, and uh, I kind of look at that as a that's a really powerful symbol as well. It's like, you know, he's, he's brought in a child into the world and he's, he's realizing, you know, that there is aging, sickness, and death in the world and he's just brought a being into this world that's going to have to suffer that exact same fate that he's just realized that he's subject to as well. And so it's like, you know, he wanted to, to save his child. He didn't want his child to have to go through that. So he decided to, he needed to find a solution to that so he could... Uh, provide that to his family. And uh, so then he uh, snuck out of the palace and, and then started his journey. And it took, uh, I think it was seven years for him to, on his journey to, once he left the palace, to, to discover enlightenment. He was uh, 35 when that happened. And there's an interesting story there. I don't take this personally, but uh, um, when there's a, in the commentaries it says that some Buddhas, when they decide to uh, renounce the world and become Buddhas. It takes them, I think it's like seven weeks in their journey to, to become enlightened. Some it takes seven months and some it takes seven years. And it took the Buddha seven years and he had to go through these seven years of austerity, sort of really torturing his body, sort of going out of whack, sort of you know, really doing starving. He almost starved to death in, in the process. And, and so he had to go through this painful thing. And in the commentary say the reason he had to do that was because in the previous Buddha, um, the Buddha had been named Jodipalo, which is my name, and uh, he had insulted the previous Buddha and called him a bald, bald-plated ascetic and didn't want to go, didn't want to go see the, but I think it was Dipankara, didn't want to go visit him. And, and so because of this insult to the Buddha, he, he had to spend seven years of uh, insult. But I don't... I don't identify with that. But, so, and again, that's sort of mythology and, and, and stories. But uh, So, at the age of 35, though, he did sort of realize enlightenment. And again, that happened on the full moon of May. So, the day that uh, he uh, um, discovered uh, enlightenment was a, was a full moon day of May. So, this, this day also commemorates the, the, uh, the Buddha's you know, auspicious day of uh, becoming enlightened. And then... He, he taught for 45 years, and sort of just as a wanderer. He, he never really stayed in any one place. There were a few monasteries that he would, uh, during the rains, when the monsoon seasons, that he would, he would stay at. Um, but for most of the year, even right up to his death, he was always, always a wanderer, always traveling. And, uh, and then, uh, but it was at the age of 80 that, uh, on, again, on a full moon, full moon day of May, that... Uh, the Buddha, um, say, passed into Parinibbana, um, and uh, there's lots of lots of stories about that particular day as well. But they all happen on on the the, the full moon of May. So this is called the uh, the of the sort of 
there's the major holidays, at least in Thailand, that I that were where I've trained and the lineage that I'm in are Sebesak, which is we know this is the say the Buddha Buddha Day, so it commemorates all of the those those events. Then on the say after the Buddha became enlightened, then after he did that, he, he sort of he, the, story, the myth goes, or the story goes, is that uh, once he uh, became enlightened, his first thought was is that the realization that he had come to, it wasn't that it was difficult to understand, he said it was too subtle. It was just, it was like this really, you know, something very subtle about some consciousness, shift in consciousness that I don't know yet, I can't, couldn't explain it, but... Uh, um, but he said it was it was too subtle. So he thought, you know, the world's never going to understand this, and it'll all just be vexed because it's just it's too subtle, and I won't be able to explain it. And there was a the story goes that there was a Brahma, Brahma Sahampati, one of the high god, and he, he overheard the Buddha's the Buddha's thoughts, and he thought, oh no, the world will be lost. You know, the, and, and so he came to the Buddha and uh, and asked him. You know, he said, you know, there there are beings in the world that he, the words are they have little little dust in their eyes. You know, they they do have wisdom, and they will be able to understand these teachings. So please, you know, out of compassion for the world, you know, please teach. And then the Buddha used his, his psychic powers and scanned and realized, yes, there actually are some beings that will understand these teachings. And hopefully, were some of those. And uh, and and, uh, and so he did. He decided to teach. And then he at first he was thinking of like, who am I going to teach? And there were two uh, ascetics that he had gone to in his in his seven years. And it turns out, though, that in the in the period of the the, the week after he'd become enlightened, um, both of those teachers had died, and so he, he like had the realization that they would be able to, to understand this, but they they didn't. But during the seven years of his, his struggle to enlightenment, um, he had five uh, companions who were were helping him sort of along the way, or were also seekers of the way, and they were they were still doing these really um, severe ascetic practices. And uh, he had the realization that they actually were, were wise enough and they had actually been of uh, companions to him and helped him that, so he would go back and, and teach them. And, uh, and it was, uh, they were a couple of like, months walk away and so he just sort of walked in stages. And that's the, uh, um, the, the full moon in, in July. And that's the beginning of our uh, range retreat. And so that's the, that commemorates the, the Buddha, the Buddha Day. And then the other major holiday is, uh, uh, well, say that, uh, that particular, the, the, the Dhamma Day, I mean, is uh, when the Buddha actually made it to Benares where these five ascetics were and he taught the, the Dhamma Chaka Sutta, um, sort of the wheel, turning the wheel of Dhamma. And it's a, sort of an exp- uh, it is an explanation of the Four Noble Truths. So he comes to them and, and at first they actually reject him. They think, oh, here's, because when he actually left the, the five ascetics, um, there's a story of uh, this woman named Sujata, and the Buddha is just about ready to, to die because of starvation, and and this this woman comes and offers him a bowl of, of rice rice milk or kind of a pudding, and uh, the Buddha kind of has this realization that you know of all of his struggles that he's done to become enlightened, it's just it just led him to basically he's going to starve to death, and he has this realization that it's you know, before that he had lived in luxury, you know, as a prince and had everything at his command and that didn't lead to true happiness. Now he, he tortured himself and that didn't lead to true happiness. And he's like, okay, there's got to be a middle way. It's not, it's not 50% of each, but it's you know, sort of the middle way in terms of you have to put forth effort but you don't have to torture yourself. And you don't, 
you have to be able to take sustenance, but you don't have to be overindulgent in it. So he decided to actually start eating again, but in moderation. And uh, and so when Sujato gave him the rice, the, the the ascetics who were practicing with him thought, ah, he's he's given up. He's he's uh, he's gone back to the the luxury. He's eating one meal a day. You know, uh, he's, he's he's being luxurious. He's sleeping three hours a night, so we can't trust him anymore. And uh, so they left him. And this was actually a, a good fortune to the Buddha, because then it actually gave him time just to sort of once he got his health back, that he was able to throw himself completely into the practice without having anybody else to to have to sort of worry about or to, to be a distraction. So in many ways it was probably a blessing to the Buddha that they, they had left him. And then, but, so, but they had been of service to him for all these years. So he, he went back to them. And the story is as soon as they saw him coming, they made an agreement with themselves. Oh, here comes that, you know, that that uh, you know, fake ascetic, you know, Gautama. Let's, let's not get up and greet him. Let's just, you know, let's just ignore him. If he wants to come over here, fine, but let's just not, you know, be, be kind to him or anything. And, but they said that once the Buddha approached him, that there was just something about his aura, that uh, they just, they all rose up and they all, went. someone got some water to wash his feet and someone took his sitting cloth and set it down and prepared it and, and then they, uh, and then the Buddha you know, started teaching them. And at first they wouldn't, they wouldn't listen to him. And, and, uh, but he, he finally said, uh, he, he announced to them, he said, you know, the, the, the word he knows, it's like the, the, the doors to the deathless have been discovered. You know, and listen, and I will I'll explain it to you. And they were like, they would listen. And finally, after the third time, he said, "Have I ever said this before to you? you have I ever said that you know the doors to the deathless have been, you know, that basic enlightenment has been realized?" And they said, "No, you haven't. <laughs> you haven't said that before." And he says, then he repeated it again. And he said, "Okay, listen to what I have to say." And they did. And then story goes that one of the ascetics actually understood what the Buddha was teaching. And uh, it's interesting because he goes through the Four Noble Truths, and at the very end of it, this this monk says, "Oh, everything that has the condition to arise is the, is the nature to cease." And that was his insight, and that was where he became a stream enterer, sort of the first level of enlightenment. And it's really significant because in all those teachings, the Buddha never said that. So it's like the Buddha knew, oh, he really he, he got what he was what he was under, you know, what he was teaching, and so that was the uh, the first time that you know anybody in the world. Had actually in this world anyway that uh, you know somebody had become enlightened through the Buddhist teaching. So that's the the, the Dhamma Day that we celebrate. And the other celebration was I'm not sure it probably would have been like a year later. So this is in February, the month of February. Um, the Buddha at this point had been sort of teaching for you know, a good part of a year, and at that point he had over a thousand sort of uh, uh, disciples, and they were all uh, fully enlightened. There's a there's a kind of story for some of the very first teachings, the the very uh, say the the turning of the wheel, the Dhammachaka, that very first one. That's one of the say the cardinal teachings. A lot of chanting that we do. That's one of the chants. We also do um, the teaching of of um, of not self. It's called a natalakana, and that's where after he's teaching the five the five ascetics. Say it's Kandanya was the first one that became a stream enter. Say this is the first level of, of enlightenment, and, uh, and but he hadn't become fully enlightened. So the story kind of goes that the Buddha would teach was teaching them for about a week, maybe it's kind of hard to tell. But like, there's the story that like several of them would go off in alms round while the, te- the Buddha was teaching the others, and then and then but then one night he gives this teaching on the uh, uh, the, the teaching of not self. 
in at the end of that teaching, all five of the ascetics become fully enlightened. So that's the first time that the, there's fully enlightened beings in the world other than the Buddha. And then the third teaching that we, we teach all the time was it's called the Fire Sermon. And there were um, the story kind of goes that there were three brothers kind of in this region that the Buddha uh, went to that were fire worshippers. They were kind of uh, um, long. They had long hair, ascetics. They were probably naked ascetics, like the, you can still see in India today. And they were they were called fire worshippers. And uh, he slowly sort of converted each one of the brothers separately. And then between between the three of them, they had like a thousand um, uh, uh, sort of students, and they all became disciples of the Buddha. And uh, and so it's kind of at the end of this, it kind of makes sense that he that he would have you know, sort of made. Had had all of them become disciples, and the Buddha at that point hadn't sort of made any rituals or ceremonies about like when to gather together as a group or anything like that. It was still pretty much very you know, loosely organized. But other other ascetics and other sort of religious leaders at that time or, or groups would observe the full moons, were were sort of uh, you know like religious um, significant kind of days, and so it's not surprising that uh, on this particular full moon of February, uh, um, all of the, the, the ascetics that the Buddha had just sort of converted or all of them, on all of them were, were fully enlightened arahants. You know, it was, okay, well, it's the full moon, let's just go see the Buddha. And so spontaneously, without any sort of emails being sent out or any notices, you know, 1,250 12, um, fully enlightened beings came to see the Buddha one night. And uh, it's interesting because the, the teaching that the Buddha gave him gave them was, was quite short and and uh, and uh, um, you know, it's, it's basically he says you know that uh, patience is the supreme austerity. That's kind of like the, the the key part of this this whole thing, the teaching that he gives them, and and uh, um, and, and I forget actually what aspect of it is, but he, he kind of you know tells them too that the. Uh, um, um, you know, to sort of you know put forth effort and to not. Uh, um, it, it sounds like he's saying like not to be over over indulgent in, in food and sort of things like this. But I've heard the interpretation that these were like fire ascetics and bron- you know that they were really really um, heavy ascetics like he was. And probably what he was telling them was you know actually you do need to get at least four hours of sleep at night. It wasn't like we we tend to take it as like oh you should be putting forth more effort or something like that. But he's probably telling them it's like. It's okay to back off a little bit, you know, to make sure you get enough sleep, make sure you get enough food, and things like that. So it's kind of an interesting teaching for that, uh, for that the one in February. So those are the three main holidays that, that they have um, in in all all sort of Buddhist Buddhist calendars. Different countries will celebrate them on different days. It's like the Chinese calendar, I think, is quite different from say say Thailand, and uh, um, it's like. Um, yeah, very different, and uh, um, so the, yeah, they do they do have have different different days that they celebrate them on. But they all they all will celebrate all three of those particular days. Um, the so the holidays that I know are say again from from Thailand. And then the other uh, say big festival days that are related to say Buddhist ceremonies would be the uh, um, the start of the rains retreat. So at the very beginning of uh, the monsoon season, it usually starts the full moon in July. Or if there's say there's two moons and two full moons in July, it's the second one. So it's usually like really late. So it can, and even can start as late as the first week of July or August. 
but usually the July, end of July, August, September, and then and into October is what we call the rains retreat. And so usually at the very beginning of that period, there's a there's a little bit of a the, the entrance into the the rains retreat is a is a little bit of a, of a uh, celebration. And when I first during my third year as a monk, I went to Thailand. Uh, I've been to Thailand before, but I, I went there and. And you know, a Geary was just starting, but you know we had, you know, it wasn't uncommon to have thirty or forty people sort of show up for occasions and dhamma talks and things like that, which is of course you know, not a huge number, but you know used to seeing you know, people interested in coming. And then I went to Thailand, and I'd never been there for a, like a ceremony day or anything like that. And uh, on that particular day at the beginning of the rains retreat, I think like fifteen buses sort of showed up with people from Bangkok or just people that wanted to just sort of come and be part of it. And uh, just for the food line, when people were coming and offering food, I was like looking down this this long line of people, and I was like, you know, there's more people on this line of people that probably had been to a Bayagiri in the entire you know five years that it existed. You know, it's like the entire history of Bayagiri was you know less people had visited the monastery than they were there. So I realized, wow, this is you know different. This is a different feel, and it's even a minor holiday. You know, but still thousands of you know, hundreds anyway of people came. For the meal offer, probably a thousand, probably a thousand people were there, just to you know, to sort of wish the monks well in the in the beginning of the the rains retreat, and then so that's another another big day, and then the the very end of the rains retreat, it's a there's a um, uh, there's a celebration at the kind of at the end of that for the for the monastics, it's called a Puarna day, which is a day that we ask for forgiveness from each other. So that's a really a special sort of ceremony, at least within the monastic group. Sangha, but also too, lots of people come to the monastery on that day, and then the Buddha allowed a ceremony called a katina, and uh, it's a, a for any monastery anywhere that's had at least I think it's four four or five monks who've uh, participated in the range retreat in that particular monastery. Then there's a, a ceremony where the lay people can offer the uh, cloth basically to the to the to the monastics. This was during the time of the, the during the time of the Buddha. Um, you know, cloth wasn't very easy easy to come by, and so it was kind of a, was a you know prized prized item or very valuable. And uh, the monks would because most of them all the time would be uh, wandering. Who this time would be uh, bhikkhunis, uh, nuns as well. And you know they would uh, during the rains retreat. It was difficult to travel just because it was. If you were, you'd be damaging the the roads and damaging the crops, and and that's when the farmers would have been really busy anyway. It was the the rains the, during the monsoon seasons? So the Buddha and, and all the other different ascetics of of that time, other religions, they didn't travel during that time either. So initially, the Buddha didn't have a rule about about not traveling during that time. And then he got criticized for it. So he's like, yeah, well, that's actually right. So he uh, established the. Uh, uh, the rains period, and then so what happened as you can imagine is you know a group of people would sort of gather in Minneapolis and, and start practicing here for three months, and you would get to know them and support them, and, and uh, they would benefit from from your generosity, and you might gener- you know, receive teachings from them and benefit from that. So when it was when they would leave, it was like you know you got to know them; they were your friends, and so it was like the sense that they wanted to the people wanted to support the monastics when they when they left and wanted them to have you know, new, new robes or something like that, which would last probably for, you know, just the, the next year, and then they would be pre-rotten at the end of the year, kind of living in the tropics. And, and so there's this really beautiful ceremony to 
um, to support any any monastics that we're, we're practicing. And uh, so that's the in in Thai culture. That's probably like this. I mean, the today is the biggest sort of religious um, ceremony. Then the Katina is like the it's the second biggest, and it's it's almost as big. And uh, it's really beautiful. If you live in the monastery, it's a really beautiful ceremony, where the people will come, and uh, and the monastics can't ask for it, so they can't. We couldn't sort of say, you know, Tom, we'd really like you to offer the katina this year. It has to be completely spontaneous, and usually people are fighting over who gets to do it. <laughs> it's a really, really um, sort of meritorious or prized sort of thing to do, and so people usually it's like a group of people get together and do it, and they'll offer uh, cloth. And it's a, it's a really simple sort of ceremony. And then you take the cloth, and then the monastics have to sew it into a robe before dawn the next day. And so we um, we take it in, and we, we've got it all sort of figured out. Where um, you know, like if right 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 now at Abayagiri, there's about I think 16 community members there, and so we have a sort of a sheet of like, okay, these are all the different aspects of how you have to sew the robe and and, and to, how to do it and. And so everybody has an aspect of it. So everybody gets together, and makes makes a robe. Lately, we've gotten pretty efficient with it, and we we, we might start sewing about two in the afternoon, when the kind of ceremony ends after the meal. And we're usually done by about nine, so it takes about seven hours to, to sew up. Not this robe, but the, the lower one, which is almost exactly like this one. But then, uh, so we sew it, and then the community decides that one person in the community will will receive the robe. So it's this real honor to get it. it usually goes to the abbot, but uh, not always. There's uh, sometimes some individual will have you know, taken on a lot of teaching responsibilities or done some you know, really good service to the to the sangha. Usually. In, in, uh, Someone who's a little bit more senior in the in the sangha, and they'll they'll receive the, that robe. And so it's this really beautiful ceremony of the whole community coming together and working on a project, and then and then giving you know giving it to a particular uh, community member. Um, so those are like the the main say I'd say like holidays and, and celebrations. And of course, in all of the. Uh, 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 like in Thailand, especially, but I think all Southeast Asian Asian countries, you know, they have a uh, like say Thai New Year's. Uh, it's called Songkran. There, you probably if you've ever you know, know anything about Thai Thai culture, you know, it's like it's the the water festival. So you see all these things with people with water cannons and sort of spraying people on the streets, and it becomes a real kind of fun kind of kind of party kind of atmosphere, things like that. So that's another big. Um, big festival for in, in Thai, and on that particular day, and at least it used to always happen. We have some photographs or some some films of this happening with with the abbot of Abayagiri, Hajim Pasano, where the they would actually bathe. Well, I have one picture. Um, of, I'll, show, well, I'll actually show it later. I'll, I'll just point it out. But it's a, a, um, the. Uh, um, it's a day where we sort of wash the. It's called washing the, the, the Buddha. So it, it is on the, on the Thai New Year, and so one one aspect the way we do it in America is that we'll have a, um, a a Buddha Buddha image, and then people come and, and just pour water on top of it. And so that that's sort of the, the whole day. But they used to in, in Thailand. What they would do is uh, yeah here this photo right here. It's one of the the, the Anagartas. You can see the, the Buddha there. And, it's been done up really beautiful with flowers and things like that, and it's just sort of this the ceremony of just, just pouring pouring the water on on, on the Buddha. And, uh, um, 
And so, but that comes from the, the sort of the Thai New Year of, of just sort of you know this, this this festival of it's kind of like renewal and you know it's like it's the um, you know, a new year kind of washing away you know not necessarily washing away your sins but this sort of is like starting clean, starting fresh, and has that kind of uh, connotation to it. And uh, so that's but what they did in the, in the early days of. Of what would say Wapanachap, and this has probably happened for centuries before that. But they would, uh, um, they have this. What they did for modesty's sake, but they have the, the senior monk would just be sitting in a just a, like a, a towel, basically wrapped around his waist, and then they have this sort of petition, and that everybody would come over and sort of pour water on this trough and be freezing cold water and just come down and pour on top of the abbot's head and then there'd be a few men in there and they'd be sort of be scrubbing them so everybody's giving the, the abbot of the monastery a bath and that's sort of the sort of the you know, everybody found, found it really fun and then of course everybody would get into a water fight themselves and, and so it's just a sort of again sort of an opportunity for a kind of a, a party kind of thing so that's a, kind of another another holiday um so, so say yeah. So those are the say the events or the days. But I kind of want to talk a little bit about sort of you know like how to use how to use these skillfully, how to use them in ways that actually are aids to our meditation practice. And uh, you know, like one thing I mentioned, you know, sort of like just the shrine elements itself. We have the you know candles. We have usually we have like say tapered candles incense and, and flowers will be on the shrine and uh, you know so just really kind of you know, generally it's just like the, the candles and I've heard different interpretations from, from different people but usually the candles sort of um, well, the, the whole shrine itself of course the, the central image is, is the Buddha image and so the you know the, the image itself is uh, is representing wisdom you know it's a, the word Buddha itself actually means to be awake and that's that's what that's what Buddha or Buddha means is to be, to be awake. So it's like our it's our highest aspiration, you know, to be awake to to what's happening in our lives, to be awake to our feelings, our emotions, you know, just to be to be mindful. So that's sort of why that's in the that's why we, we put that in, in the center. It does mean also the you know the historical person who was the Buddha, who's sort of having gratitude that that he did want to teach and that he didn't just keep it to himself, that you know he actually did do the work over the all of his lifetimes to to, be, to, to become a Buddha in this you know just reverence for for the teachings that, that he taught. So the so the central image is is the, is the Buddha, and then the candles represent sort of uh, wisdom. So it's like the light you know the light of wisdom, and uh, you can also sort of you know see impermanence there, how the, how the candles burn down and. You know, kind of how fragile it is too. You know, the candles can be blown out if we don't give it careful attention, and and, uh, and so. But they they represent the central images uh, for them is uh, is wisdom. Then the incense. It's a uh, when you light incense, it has a, you know usually has a very beautiful smell, but also it just burns it like say you know it's a candle. It's kind of you know. It flickers and it's bright, and sometimes it's actually too too bright to look at. Which you know, wisdom can be that way. But the uh, incense burns, but it's just at one single point, and you can actually sort of you can look at that. And so that's the uh, so the one pointedness of concentration uh, of samadhi. So the the incense is uh, is represent representation of, of concentration, and uh, and also the say the sweetness of it is that you know the. There is a sweetness when you, when you are concentrated. There's a you know, some purity of that, 
and then the, so then the flowers are, are similar, just the, the fragrance of that, but that's the, the sila aspect, uh, morality, the sort of, again, beautiful smell of somebody who's, uh, who's practicing well and, and who's, who's, there's a safety you know, that comes from being around somebody who you know is not trying to take advantage of you or you know, trying to get something from you or do anything wrong in the world. You can really trust that kind of person. There's that sort of sense of you know, fragrance that comes from that. And, uh, and so, you know, I really like the fact that sort of Ajahn Amaron, he was, you know, lighting the candles, like, you know, why are we doing that? So it's, you know, it's those, that is the, the imagery there, but just, just lighting a candle doesn't mean anything, or lighting the incense doesn't mean anything. It's, it's something that we actually have to bring our minds to. It actually has to be something that we cultivate. So it's a, um, so one aspect of when we are doing, you know, setting up the, the shrine for the, the puja, for the ceremony, is that we usually we come in and we bow three times to the to the shrine to the good image and to the shrine, and again there's there's nothing nothing happens in, in the bowing. It's like in the Tibetan tradition they have you know, sometimes it's you know to to go into a formal meditation retreat or something like that. They have to do like ten thousand or a hundred thousand you know body prostrations. That's really part of the of the whole, the whole aspect. But the, there's nothing like mystical that happens there. It's not that the you know, what we do in the, in the Theravada tradition is a very simple, you know, just three bows, but it does, you know, like we can do that entire lives and not be any wiser for it. And so we have to actually, you know, know why we're doing it. And that's, it's really, it's a, it's just this uh, reminder to, to quiet the mind. So it's like what we do in the monastery is like every time we enter into the shrine room where the, the Buddha image is, anytime we enter into our, our cabin, we, we, most of us have individual cabins, Sometimes we might have to share a room or something like that, but we all have uh, Buddha images in our shrines, in, in our cabins. And uh, any, so any place, place we're going in where we're going to be practicing, if there's a Buddha image there, the, the first thing we do is we just we set our belongings down. And it's just to quiet your mind. It's just to really consciously, okay, whatever I was thinking about, whatever I was doing, whatever I'm planning to do when I get into this room, just drop that. And the bowing itself is just this uh, anchor point to allow you to, to remember to do that and to, and to just bow. And uh, if you do that, like every single day, you, know, you can get into this, this habit. Or just a, you know, it's not, not a ritual, but a, you know, um, yeah, just, a, just a habit or um, not using it skillfully. You can just sort of come into the room, one, two, three, it's time to eat. You know, one, two, three, let's meditate, you know. And, and, and if you're doing it that way, it's just it's it's a it's almost like more like superstition. You're like, okay, this is a rule that I have to do. Like, you know, you have to do this before you meditate, and, and that uh, then it doesn't really become an aid to for meditation for stilling the mind. So it's again something you have to very consciously you know, bring to your mind and, and and want to do that and actually see the benefit of it, which is to just quiet and still the mind. And if you do that, then of course. If you you, know, you get back to your cabin and you still the mind, then it's okay. Now let's meditate, or you get into the shrine room. Okay, then let's you know, then okay. I've set that aside. It's much more peaceful, not thinking about whatever I was thinking about. And then when you go into the puja, it gives you just much more of an opportunity to be present for what you intended to do. So this that's the sort of the the element of the bowing. And when you do that, then when you stop and you bow, then you can sort of you know, just take in the elements of the shrine and remember that. Okay, yeah, that, you know, as the whoever it is, the teacher, 
senior monk or nun is, is lighting the candles, you can just reflect on that. Okay, that's that's the aspect of wisdom, and then they light the incense, and then you can just bring that to mind. So it's just it's these are like sort of touch, touch points that you can come back to, just to continually to remember that these are aspects that we we want to cultivate in our lives, and we want to want to uh, yeah aspire towards. Um, one thing that, uh, maybe I'll get into some of these slides here now. Um, these are, these initial ones here. This would have, that's a good one to start, let's just start right there. Um, one thing about sort of ceremonies and, and rituals is, I, I, I was just going through the photos a couple of days ago, just preparing for, for this, and, uh, and they had, you know, there's probably like a hundred pictures someone had taken of this, of this particular ceremony, and I saw this one, and, I was like, yeah, this is actually a big part of what the, what ritual and what ceremony is about. Is that uh, you, know, um, you know, probably a dozen people, and not everybody's in the photograph there, but a dozen people came together just to make the ritual items, sort of like just gathering the flowers and gathering the incense and the candles, and and they, they make it up into this really beautiful sort of bouquet, and then. Um, and so you know, they, they probably spent all afternoon. You know, it was a little you know, opportunity for people to meet new people and to, to gather and to, and to work together as a community. So let's go back to the, the first one. And so, so this was this was taken um, the day before the U.S. went into Iraq. We had a I guess there was a world sort of peace sort of you know, gathering in many many places all over the world, and so. They were you know, sort of praying for world peace on this particular day, and uh, you can see the various sort of you know, elements of the of a, you know, sort of, a, um, of like say we would say a puja or um, ritual <laughs> ritual, and so they got the uh, um, candles in those little uh, cups. Here they don't have the flowers, but I think in the next photo they will. But you can see. Go back to the first one. Um, you can see in the foreground people have chanting books. So oftentimes in, in, a, in a puja or ritual they'll be say, bowing to the, to the shrine. But there's also chanting. And I've got a really nice story about that. I was listening to uh, Ajahn Viridano, who's up in uh, Ottawa. And he was saying that uh, a few years ago um, somebody in his particular sangha had uh, was, uh, died of uh, cancer. And he was with them when they just when they really started getting really bad, and the, the cancer had entered into their bones, and then really shortly after that, it entered into the blood system. And uh, before that, they, he could you know talk to her, and she could you know rationally understand what he was was saying. But as soon as the cancer entered into the blood system, it just like she couldn't you know, like rationally. There was too much pain, and he could tell that she was in a lot of fear. And so his, any explanations he was giving or any sort of instructions to try to, to calm down, you know, just didn't, wasn't registering. Just her brain wasn't working that way anymore. And he said he just spontaneously just started chanting. He started doing the chanting that they do at the monastery all the time, in the morning or evening chanting. And he said she immediately connected with it and she just immediately calmed down because she had been practicing this ritual, you know, the ritual of chanting. And so it actually, you know, had some meaning for her. You know, it, it always meant to her, you know, peace and calm. It was like how she would prepare her mind for meditation. So as soon as she heard it, it's not an intellectual, it's not an intellectual aspect. It's a, it's a heartfelt sort of aspect. And so, you know, so I just saw a lot of photos. It has like all those elements. Has the chanting. Has the, has the candles. Has the community. 
everybody's in a circle, so there's this, all this sort of you know, ritual that way. Let's go on to the Nikudan, just here's. What we normally do, like on these particular days, is we would do a circumambulation either around a Buddha image or a meditation hall. And so we'd light the candles and just do three three circles around uh, see the building. And uh, in each of the each time you go around, you would just sort of like be with your intention to sort of like just either just going through Buddha, 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 just thinking of the Buddha, reflecting on all the qualities of of, of the Buddha, being awake and the gratitude for the teachings and then the second one you'd go around and you'd be doing Dhammo, 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 keeping the Dhamma in mind and, and then the second one, the third round would be the Sangha, so just reflecting on community and, uh, and the support we get from you know, everybody's practicing together and so as, as you walk around the image um, you'd be carrying the candles and sensing okay, next one and then at the end of it we uh, next one we, we, depending on how many people are there, we, we just have a receptacle form. It's really beautiful. You might have you know, a couple hundred candles sort of all burning on these, these steps that lead up to another Buddha image up on the hill. And, uh, okay, next one. Okay, next one. Yeah, and that's the, uh, one of the ceremonies for, the, say, the Thai New Year. Next one. Now I really like this one. This is uh, one of the senior monks at Abayagiri. This is a, another ceremony. And, He's, he has a, a blessing cord, and, uh, and it's just a, one of the little girls that her mother comes to the monastery all the time. And I just really like that picture. It just, you know, just shows that the, uh, a lot of the, the rituals and things are, are really family-based. You know, it's like the whole family comes to these. It's just, it's just not, you know, kind of in the West, we kind of, you know, we go off and do individual meditation retreats, and it's, you know, it's not just about us, because we have to leave our families. and and things like that, but in, in a lot of these, these ceremonies and rituals, like the whole family comes and, and uh, you know, they'll be there most of the day. And kid, of course the kids go off and do what kids do and, and play and stuff like that, but they do they oftentimes really appreciate the, the ceremonies as well. Okay, next one. Now this was, you know, we did our circumambulation by gearing, we could do it single file, but this is at the Wapapong, the monastery of Rajan Chah. Um, was and this is just um, probably any one of the uh, um, the festival days. You know, it's just it'll be it'll be like this. It'll be uh, five thousand lay people will come to the monastery on that particular day. You know, it might be two or three thousand uh, monks coming, and uh, and uh, they they do it to us. Their circumambulation path, as you can imagine, is much bigger. It might be like <laughs> quarter mile uh, circle and stuff like that. But there'll be all these people. And uh, it's a really beautiful, beautiful ceremony, the ceremonies. Um, I have a video here, I don't know if I'll show it. I might show it later if anybody wants to stick around and watch it, but it's of uh, Ajahn Chah's funeral. And uh, uh, a million people came to his funeral. And there's, there's this kind of scene where uh, actually the king and queen of Thailand came to, to pay respects to his, his, his body and they ceremonially light, lit, the, lit the, the funeral pyre. And then he comes out, and it shows the it shows the scan of people, and it's just it's just thousands, and thousands of, of, of people that were that were there, and uh, it's just it's really peaceful and really calm, and it's just really powerful to see you know, just the devotion and, and the, that sort of you know communal communal harmony and, and coming together for you know something like uh, you know, a funeral, doesn't funeral or um, any of the Buddhist holidays. 
Let's go on to the next one. And this is, uh, this probably would have been, this ceremony here would have been Ajahn Chah's uh, commemorating his, his, his passing away. So they have a, a circumambulation. Again, like you know, 10,000 people might show up on that particular day. And, uh, and uh, that's that, the big spire in the center there. Is, uh, when, when they cremated Ajahn Chah, his, his body turned into crystals. Mm-hmm. And uh, all of his, some of, most of his, his body parts are, are in, that, uh, in that shrine. So the monks have circumambulated the, the shrine three times. And then if you can get in, you can go in and put your flowers there at the shrine. And that's what's happening in this, this ceremony here. Okay, next one. And there's lay people coming through after the monks. Monks are come through first. And then. Next one. And here's, you know, probably got two full insides. The people were just lining the flowers that they had had around the outside. You can just imagine. Actually, I was listening to a, a talk, too, kind of preparing for this one. And, you know, sort of things with ritual. It's like uh, this, this particular monk was in England giving this talk. And he was... He, and, an old talk was like when Princess Di had, had had died in England, and you know, just lots of people you know came to the funeral. And you know, I remember seeing pictures like this, you know, just you know, five foot, ten foot wall of flowers, you know, just a stretch forever, you know. And it's just it was just real, you know, a very skillful, wholesome way for people to come together to sort of you know deal with grief, you know, actually realizing that it's not, you know, grief isn't isn't always a, an individual. <coughs> individual thing. So it's like, you know, if it's like if it's your partner or your loved one that dies, you know, there's other people that are involved in that as well. And you know, sort of seeing, you know, it enables you to have a container to be able to deal with that that grief. You know, I think you know, with Ajahn Charles passing away now that that was twenty years ago, it's it's more of a joyous sort of occasion now. But so this is you know, this is sort of commemorating someone's passing away. And uh, you know, I was thinking the same thing when this monk was talking about that Princess Di. You know, I, I wasn't, I don't think I was, you know, I wasn't even alive, but like when JFK, you know, passed or was assassinated, you know, the, the images I've seen of, you know, the mourning and, the, you know, the, the sort of really beautiful ritual of, you know, how it was all done in a really beautiful way. It just gave the nation a, a you know, a focus for, for dealing with, with the grief. So ritual can, can, can do, uh, you know, very, you know, be very healing in many ways. Is there any more, John? So this is at Abayagiri. This is a, one of our outdoor shrines. This is we call this the ordination platform. So this is where now where we do most of our sort of circumambulations. If it's the weather's good, there's a path that goes completely around it, probably about a two two hundred foot sort of circum, circumambulation path, and that's a. Um, this is this is probably just like our morning or evening puja. So we we gather every every morning in, in the summertime and, and sit outside. You know, and gather at five in the morning and then again at seven in the night and just go through the chanting and, and uh, there's candles and incense and all that. We do that every day. Yeah. The white robes. Ones. Yeah. Those are their beginning. Uh, we call them anagarikas. <coughs> so um, so those two are. They've taken on the eight precepts, and it's a training for one one year. And if they wish to go on, they will become novices. So the, the the monk who's in the very very far back, you can see like he doesn't. Most of the monks there have a have a robe over their left shoulder, 
And so they're fully ordained monks, but the ones there's you can see two in the picture that don't have a robe over their shoulder. Um, kind of one on the far right, second one from the far right, and the one on the far left in the back. Those are both novices. And so it's the, that's the only way you can tell <laughs> if someone's fully ordained or a novice. Novices will usually be at the very end of the line. If they, if they have all their robes on, they won't have a, that third robe over their shoulder. And, then the, so the, the, and they, the novices follow ten precepts, and, which is basically not using money. And then if you, go, you choose to go on further, then be, we have 227 precepts as fully ordained monks. So we can go on to the next one. I like this photo because this, this is actually uh, the, the man in white. He's becoming a novice. And the one who's in brown is going to become a, a, a bhikkhu. So it's a sort of a, they had the ceremonies to, together with them. But the, uh, the center monk right in front of the Buddha, that's my teacher, Rajan Pasano. And then to his left is a, is a Chinese monk. Who's, he comes to Minneapolis quite a, quite a lot. Is a, a Reverend Hung Shur, and uh, he's a really good monk. So I should let uh, Mark know if somebody comes here. He'd be wonderful to have here. He, he's really into music and, and puppets. <laughs> he uses puppets for dhamma talks. And he's very skilled with them. And you probably find very fascinating to Ajahn Pasano on the right. That's Bhikkhu Bodhi. So if you've ever read uh, Majjhima Nikaya or the Diga Nikaya and Gutra Nikaya, and all the all the, the, the translations. That's Bhikkhu Bodhi. This one, he's, we have we owe a big debt of gratitude to him. So he's a, in terms of our Buddhist scholarship and understanding of the Buddhist teachings. He's a you know, good friend of our community. Okay, next slide. And this is just later on in the in a particular Bhikkhu uh, ordination. Just, uh, just sort of showing the ceremony of it. Is that it? Yeah, back to the So I just wanted to just kind of show. I just I like starting off with those pictures of a of a Bayagiri sort of looks really beautiful, the candles, the incense, and you're all going around in a circle and then you show the picture of Thailand and there's ten thousand people there. It's just like okay, different scale in Thailand. But, uh, so I didn't really have any particular plan of what I wanted to cover tonight. I knew I'd cover something. So uh, I guess I wanted to open it up for questions, if anybody has any any questions. Maybe the slideshow may have sparked some questions, didn't you? So if anybody has any questions. Uh, yeah, Tom? To follow up, I wondered if you've ever heard this version of the... Siddhartha transformation. But Karen Armstrong, who's I normally respect her as a yeah. Christian uh, researcher, I heard her say that uh, these four different people that uh, Siddhartha saw when he went out yeah. were actually brought into him, that his father actually brought them in into the palace. He didn't go out looking. They were brought to him so he could see. Is there, have you ever heard that before? No. Uh, was that in the book, The Buddha? Pardon me? Was that in her book called The Buddha? Uh, I'm not sure. I just heard her saying this on the radio. So I yeah. She hasn't written anywhere. Yeah. Um, no, I've never, I've never heard that. I've, I've always heard it the opposite way. Because, I mean, in terms of the myth of the story, it wouldn't, wouldn't make any sense. Because, right. you know, the Buddha was... Yeah, his father was trying to shield him from all of that. Yeah. So yeah, no, I've never, 
It may have happened that way. She might have an inside source that we don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. yeah, that's it. It's like, too, it's like, you know, different traditions, and especially sort of like, you say, you know, the different, three major different schools of Buddhism, Theravada, Mahayana, the Vajrayana. So, you know, they, you know, they do have different versions of, of a lot of these different stories. So I don't, you know, as I was sort of talking about it. I mean, I do, I, have, I hold these, these stories very reverentially and, you know, I, to me it's like, you know, if it did happen or didn't happen, isn't, isn't you know, because it is, it's more the, uh, you know, the, the meaning behind it, the, the, the story of, you know, how do you use that. So it's like, yeah, the Buddha, you know, if he took seven steps or, you know, it doesn't really, really matter to me because it's, it's, it is pointing to, though, that he was a great being and that he, you know, did, did come into the world to, um, you know, to, to end in suffering for for many beings, so it's like you know I can look at it and the, the symbology of it that way. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I just wanted to thank you for coming, and mm-hmm. I really enjoyed the talk. And I noticed um, just how my mind settled down just in hearing you speak. Um, yeah, and maybe it's the stories too. The stories are always nice to hear. But I also felt like I was just picking up on some of your samadhi. Um, so I was just wondering if if you could talk at all about just, you know, bringing samadhi into daily life and how that's maybe, you know, maybe it's easier, hopefully, for mm-hmm. you now than it was. But just, because I really feel that from you, this, um, just, and it's really, and it's helped just my mind just in this talk, um, just that sense of, yeah, it's it's okay. Just mm. uh, and bringing that just even while while talking. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, I think that you know, like the formal practice that we do, so like you know, being on retreat or you know, I just did come off of a, a longer retreat, and so that might you know, who knows if you know something's being transmitted or I'm just speaking more gently. You know, I don't know, but the, so like I spent the last three months really diving in really deeply with the meta. Uh, as, a, as, a, as a meditation object, so I, I hope you all come tomorrow because I'm really excited about talking about that topic, and, uh, and so. Uh, um, but that was like my main focus, and you know, it's, yeah, for three months, and there were times where the mind was settled and focused and you know, enjoyed it, and there were, you know, vast majority of the times it wasn't. You know, it was just it was just mindfulness practice, just keeping the mind on on the object of the meditation, and you don't really kind of worry about the results if it gets concentrated or not. You just you're putting forth the effort, and so that's a lot of what the formal practice is. But I've noticed that so we've been off retreat now for two months. We were on for three, and then we've been off for two, and then now we're back into um, you know building the monastery and you know. Um, a lot more interactions with people now and traveling and things like that. But what I have noticed is it's like you know the amount of effort that I put into during the retreat, that sort of you know, any calmness that I did get from that, I'm noticing really very strongly that that there's it carries over. You know, you do you do get you know, say benefits from the concentration practice and you know it does sort of you know settle settle the mind or this makes it softer. And so like I've been noticing lately it's like you know, I noticed the mind, you know, before the retreat started, before I really did a lot of meditation practice. And you know, there might be something where someone comes up and says something to you, like they might be rushed or you misinterpret it and think it's really rude what they said or something like that. And, you know, before that would have been sort of like, you know, ooh, that kind of hurt, you know, this sort of, you kind of react to it or you may not say anything, but you sort of feel this sort of tightening in the chest or something. But then after doing, say, three months of this really formal practice, 
it's like now that the retreat is over and you know someone does that exact same thing it's like I'm noticing in my mind now it's just sort of like oh he's he's really suffering you know it's just not it's not the sort of sense of like you know I need to protect myself or he's wrong or he's bad but it's just this much more and so you know it's much more gentleness in, in, in the mind and so it's like so like right now like I'm not you know I'm still doing the loving kindness practice but it's like it's not getting anywhere near the, the concentration level that I would have during during the retreat, and uh, and so so I think like so so how do you take that samadhi practice you know into the daily life? It's like at a certain level you don't yeah because it's like there's a it's you know, it comes under certain con- con- causes and conditions, and so what I kind of see is it's like what I feel like daily life is is that's the preparation. Daily life is the preparation for when you do go into um, concentration practice. So it's like how skillfully I live my life. So for the next seven months, because in, in seven months' time we'll go back into a three-month retreat. We do January, February, March is our formal time of meditation practice. And there'll be other times we'll have a couple of weeks or a month here or there, but they're uh, usually like two-week periods. But I just see like more and more, it's like, you know, how skillfully I follow my precepts, how you know, gentle I am with the people around me and things like that, that that has a great influence than when I go in to, to do formal meditation practice. It's like yeah, the more gently you've been, the more more sort of, uh, effort you put into the practice. Even if it's just like say if I'm doing loving kindness practice now, it's like most of the time I don't don't connect with the object at all, you know, very very strongly. But it's just there's a particular pattern or, or way you do it of going through phrases and things like that. So if I spend an entire hour just going through the phrases, even though I may not you know connect with the feeling, I don't feel like that was a waste of meditation. Like I stayed with that meditation object for a whole hour. In some levels, that's concentration, even in itself. So, yeah. Any other questions? Yeah. Keep building on that. Um, with the does doing the rituals as a community does that kind of help too when you get into that interaction? I mean, if you're living in a close community with people, mm-hmm. it seems like the possibilities for friction are greater. And mm-hmm. does it? Maybe it's a question of which helps more—the mindfulness or the fact that you built this kind of ritual and community that way to kind of diffuse the tension that might otherwise be there. Yeah, that's a good question. Um, I would definitely say that the sort of you know all the common aspects of our of our life you know help us to live together. For for one thing, is like you know if we were just a group of say twenty individuals who just said you know let's just get together and meditate. But then, you know, so like, um, but you know, say half the community members wanted to say raise goats and chickens, and the other half wanted to, you know, just, just be a, you know, like more like a monastery where that's not happening. So you know, there's tension there. So just just having this, you really, that's one thing about say like ritual or just the thing about bowing. It's like you know, there's a particular way that we do it in the in the Thai forest tradition, or maybe even just maybe even Bayagiri's way of doing it's maybe different from other. Even in our child, we have a particular way that we do it, and so it's a you just putting yourself into that particular form. You know, it it, it uh, there's nothing in say there's nothing in the bow and there's nothing in the form itself that actually you know is is really there's nothing in it that's magical or is any transforming anything. But it's it's how your mind reacts to it, and so um, so I think like the same way. It's like. Um, the, the beautiful thing about actually living in, say, a monastery is that uh, 
Um, no one there is asked to be there. So it's like no one you know, sort of came up to you and said, Jane, we really want you to come be on Agarika. You know, it's like you, know, you would come to us and say, you know, I'd like to you know, start the training. You know, can, I, can I be there? And so you know, partly it's, it's really beautiful because if you ask to come and do it, then you can't blame us <laughs> when things get difficult. Because no, you asked to be here. You asked to be the guest. And so uh, it, uh, it, that really allows you to, to drop a lot of it. You know, so it's like you, you don't blame other people. It's like you actually take responsibility for being there. But then having everybody sort of being on the same page, like, okay, we do have morning puja at 5 a.m. We do have a work period from 7 to 11, and you know, you know, however the schedule is. You know, it's like, it's like you know, it can feel like at times like I'm a, you know, I actually haven't had this thought for a long, long time, but it's like you can't feel like you're a prisoner in the monastery. You know, it's like, you know, you, know, you have to do this because this is the schedule. But the thing is, you don't have to. You know, it's like there's nothing, there's, you know, we haven't signed any agreement. There's no contract. It's like, you know, it's like, you know, I'm there because I choose to be there. And so that actually forces you to, well, I was really impressed this last year we had a, um, I was attending a conference with the Catholic monks, Buddhist Catholic monks got together and, and uh, we were talking, and you know they take uh, not only you know it's not only life and vows that they take, um, but it's also they, they take vows to their community. So it's like like in Bhagiri, like I ordained with my teacher Ajahn and basically I had I, um, made an agreement with him that I would listen to him for the first five years. <laughs> you know, I would, you know, say whatever you know, whatever you sort of advise me. But after that, if he says I'm well enough trained, then I'm no longer under dependence of him. Respectfully, I will still, as long as he's alive, I will always do what he what he asked me to do. But that uh, um, I, you know, like there's no, there's really no commitment. Like if I wanted to, I could go off to Thailand you know, tomorrow. Um, so I'm, I'm senior enough to do that. But uh, in, the, in the Catholic tradition, the Christian tradition, you know, they 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 take vows of stability. And we started talking about that with with that group, and it's just like it, it's really, really powerful, because it's like, you know, their communities are dwindling, for one thing, so it's like, you, know, you might live with, say, you know, say 10 or, you know, say, you know, 50 other other monastics, and uh, if you don't like somebody, you know, you've, you've taken a vow to be with that community, it's like, you can, you might have to spend the rest of your life with that person, you know, it's the only community of 10, so it really forces them to get over their issues, <laughs> you know, to really work them through, and, uh, you know, sort of, you know. And I was, we were really impressed with that, you know, because in, in our tradition, it's like, yeah, if you don't like somebody, you can sort of bite your lip and, you know, they'll, they'll leave or you'll leave and, you know, there's, there's turnover and stuff like that. And, uh, and so, you know, in some ways, you can, you, can, you can dodge it and not have to deal with it. But, even, you know, at a certain level, you can't either because it's like, you know, even, just, even though we do have that ability to travel, it's, you, know, you can see that by dodging it and things like that, that it's, it's you know, you're creating dukkha for yourself. You know, there's suffering in that. If you're, if you're really honest with yourself, then you, you would certainly you know, try to find ways to do it. And then and I think just having like you know all those commonalities. You know, it, you know, it's like many times in the monastery. It's not that way right now for me, but there are many times when there's not a single person in the monastery who I would have considered to be like a friend you know, if I was out in the world. You know, like these aren't they weren't the type of people that I go to a movie with or. You know, go. None, of, none of them were interested in what the Minnesota Vikings were doing. You know, or, but there, there are a few now who are interested. There's one right there. But uh, we got together all winter retreat and talked about sports. Sorry, Kevin, for... Uh,
California out there. But uh, um, so there, you know, there, there come times when there's, there's actually yeah, nobody in, in the community that you would really be friends with. But it's like it doesn't matter. And it's like you know that I know that everybody in that monastery is there because they want to, to end suffering, and, and that's that, that's like my biggest value. And so even though like like socially I wouldn't wouldn't hang out with them. It's, it's, it's completely easy to, to want to be with them and, and to practice with them and to support them and be supported by them. So in the rituals, I'll, I'll help them out because it just gives us that we're all facing the same direction. <laughs> does that forgiveness ceremony kind of help that process? Too? Yeah, it does too, yeah. Mm-hmm. Did I give a talk on that here? That asking for but, uh, yeah, I've given several talks on that. That's one of my one of my favorite subjects is the, the asking forgiveness ceremony. Don't have time to get into it right now. Any other? Maybe I do have time to talk about it. Yeah. Did you refer to the Catholic Buddhist monks? Is that what you said? Uh, it, was a, it was a Catholic Catholic monk, Buddhist monk. So it's a, it's a, it's a, uh, um, a dialogue that uh, is actually sponsored by the Catholic Church where they get together with other religious groups and so it's called intermonastic dialogue. So yeah, it's two different groups, not, 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 not one. Buddhist Catholics. <laughs> you are ex-Catholics who are now Buddhist. Yeah. No, no, it's a... It's a like, um, Several of the monks that attended are from St. John's over in Collegeville. Mm-hmm. I'm really good friends with one of the one of the senior monks there. And, and, uh, actually, when I leave here, I'm going down to Chicago to go stay for a couple nights at St. Procopius Monastery outside Chicago from just one of the monks that I met and, mm-hmm. in, in that dialogue. He's the same age I am, so it's nice to know a Catholic monk who's actually young. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, it's kind of interesting. It's like at a Baigiri, there's a um, they're actually Eastern Orthodox. The, they're from U- Ukraine, but I don't know exactly the whole history of it. But they split from their church about 800 years ago, and they're actually Catholic, even though they they, they have all the full beards. They look just like they're out of, out of Ukraine, all the architecture and most of their ceremony and stuff. But they're under the auspices of, of Rome, and and uh, the. The vice abbot there was was very liberal, and uh, I used to. Uh, one of our sort of rituals or ceremonies is every night, every week we stay up all night long. Once a week, and we stay up and meditate all night long, and uh, we finish our, our last ceremony for the morning chanting about three thirty. And so I just made a vow just not to not to go to sleep that in the next two hours. And so I would walk over to their monastery and I go to their morning puja. <laughs> we did start at four, and then so all the monks there got to know me really well. And and, uh, and I remember when you know, sort of just having this realization. It's like because when, when I grew up, I had never seen a seen a monk, a Christian or, or a Buddhist. And there's a sort of thought. It's like you know I totally disagree with not totally disagree, but you know I don't really connect with the, with the Catholic teachings or. Christian teachings, but if I had met this lifestyle, you know, like before I met Buddhism, there's there's a very good chance that I could have been, could have could have be, you know could have become a monastic. Because there's some part of me that is really attracted to the monastic form, and uh, so we get together at these conferences with the with Catholic monks that you know, we we find that we have so much in common. It's it's really incredible. You know, we don't get together to debate theology and stuff like that. It's really and most of the times. 
both sides will come away saying, you know, I really, really appreciate hearing the way you practice. And the thing I come away with is, I'm really glad I'm a Buddhist. <laughs> even, though, you know, even though it's our, our practices are similar, but you know, it's, it's quite, quite fun. We learn a lot from each other that way. Is, is part of your work when you're at your monastery, uh, do you leave the monastery and go out to the community and work with people? I'm just curious. Yeah. Um, Ajahn Chandigo, we, we have a, a pretty good website where we have, have Dhamma talks and stuff like that. And Ajahn Chandigo was at a Baigiri last year and he gave this really wonderful talk on social activism. And uh, his, his, uh, his I hope I'm accurate on this, but he, he sort of said, you know, the most sort of radical thing we can do in America is make a monastery. <laughs> so that's our social activism is, is really creating you know spaces that people can come to to get away from the, the, the rat race of the world and to have a place where it's you know the, the focus is you know, not not you know, no televisions no news no you know and just places where people can come and practice and so you know that that's that's how we support okay. people in the communities and people. so are there retreats there that people we don't in the monastery we. Um, when I first got there, like I would sometimes be listening, I'd be in the office, and, and somebody would be answering the phone, and I'd hear them say, no, we don't offer retreats. And I'd always say, don't say that. Tell them we offer the five-year retreat. And I was like, <laughs> it's, it's, not a, it's not a retreat about concentration or being silent. But it's like, um, you know, it's like, when you come to the monastery, it's like you just plug into the life. And, uh, and so, and, and that in itself is a retreat. You know, it's like it's uh, you know, it's, it's it's right livelihood, it's right in, right effort, right you know all the all the eightfold path is, is there. You know, right intention, right speech, and right action. It's, it's, so it's, it's it's learning, say, you know, Buddhism in a way other than sort of the the, the retreat mode. And uh, but we do for our for our community. Um, we at least at least once a year, sometimes two times a year. We, uh, one of the senior monks will go in and offer like a ten-day or a two-week retreat, and usually we we do uh, um, teachings at Spirit Rock. So before Ajahn Amaro, when he was he's he's now in England, he's to taken over for Ajahn Sumedho. He, he retired. He's living in Thailand now. Ajahn Amaro went over and was taking over. So it's a little harder for us to to do um, those kind of teachings just because uh, he was such a valuable uh, Dhamma teacher, but. Uh, so occasionally we'll, we'll still do like ten day retreats at Spirit Rock, and so we, we do them there. We just don't have the for one thing we don't have the facilities at uh, where we are. It's a it's a rugged, really rugged piece of land. So if we come to visit you, we would come to stay. Yeah, and we'll put you to work. <laughs> no, but you're welcome. Everybody's welcome to come. It's just if you wanted to to come and sort of participate. Um, yeah, it's a, we have a website that you can go to and you can contact the guest master and things like that. Usually it's about a week, the uh, first time get visitors and come to... You know, actually last last summer, I think it was every single week of the year, there was someone from Common Ground that was there. I was really surprised. I'd just, I'd just be sitting there and I'd, I'd hear this sort of Minnesota accent, you know, and, and I'd just go up to him and go, you're from Common Ground, aren't you? And like, how did you know? <laughs> I think that's true. Actually, for like two or three months, there was someone from from here who practiced here. It was was it by Gary? It hasn't been any, maybe I think two people have been this year. So. Yeah. <laughs> um, could you say something, Monte, about um, the relationship of um, 
your community to um, do bikinis and bikini ordination? Yeah. So the first thing is is uh, Ajahn Pasno, who's the abbot. He's actually I I don't know exactly what the uh, um, organization's called, but it's sort of like the support group for the bikinis. He's actually like the president of, of the of the order, and so. Coming from Thailand, there's a, um, it's, it's really kind of tricky with the politics and all that, and so he's always been wanting to be very supportive of, of the bikinis in the United States, and uh, um, he attended one of the first ordinations in California, and he actually didn't even participate in the ceremony itself, like he wasn't part of the what's called the quorum and stuff like that, but he was in attendance, and he got a lot of negative negative feedback from the authorities in Thailand and so he just you know it's like okay we're going to support them but we're going to support them from behind the scenes so it's like you know financial support and teaching support and things like that so we're really fortunate in, in California there's there's two two nuns communities uh, Aranyabodi and uh, um, I forget the other one Aranyabodi is the the, the nuns from Amravati. There were two nuns there in the Sila Draw order and they became uh, bhikkhunis, fully ordained bhikkhunis. And there's another one um, kind of in that same area that uh, Aya Tatatiloka, she was the uh, one of the senior senior nuns in America and she has a community. And so, yeah, we, we try to support them as much as we can in that way. The, both of those communities come to Abhayagiri and receive teachings and we go there. And I've, I've been to both of their places myself. So that's our that's our connection so far. Yeah, we're you know it's it's the early days and so things things are changing and so it's a, you know we hope is that you know as as you know people become more familiar with it and you know at the beginning it can be people can have closed views and, and shut shut off to things but if you do it in a gentle and you know just sort of support the ways you can and you know, hopefully attitudes will change. I was just telling somebody, especially this morning, that uh, like when I first came to the monastery, it's like when someone asked the question, you know, like you know, just about bikuni ordination, you know, the standard question was it just doesn't exist. It wasn't like a judgment or anything like that. It was just the order died out 800 years ago. It just doesn't exist. And you know, so the the theory was, it's like, well, how do we support women in practice? So it's like Lumbar Sumedho and Hajjan Suchito spent you know most of their monastic life. You know, trying to create a, an environment for where women could practice. It wasn't always ideal or always, you know, maybe didn't turn out to be the best, but they tried. You know, they tried to provide situations for women to be able to practice. And uh, so that actually helped the process, though. It actually sort of, you know, let people know that women are serious about practice and they actually can be monastics, whereas they probably before that, their people would have been more, more cut off or more, no, it just doesn't exist. So I look at it as usually quite joyful in the, the fact that, yeah, when I first was looking at ordaining, it was, the answer to that question was they don't exist, but now they do, just in 15 years. The whole attitude is, has shifted, so hopefully, and I heard Ajahn Pasana, or Ajahn Amaro once, it was before I ordained, someone asked him, um, you know, like what, how he saw the Mikuni situation, what's, what's it going to be like, and like, um, you know, and he, he said something like, you know, Fifty years from now, Buddhism in America won't look anything like what we know it's know it today. And it's like in fifteen years, he's you know it's shifted quite a bit. So that's short answer.
So it's just now 9 o'clock. Is that what time the program ends? Okay. Okay, well, thank you for coming. Is there any announcements that need to be made? or? One announcement that there's still space in the workshop tomorrow, but I already said that. So thanks for coming. Mm -hmm. And thank you so much for having us. My pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.